You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. China says Twitter and Facebook are restricting its freedom of speech. The silence criminal gang has expanded internationally. Google, Mozilla, and Apple are blocking the Kazakh government's root certificate. A popular Ruby library was backdoored after a developer's account was hacked. And scammers buy ads to place their phone numbers at the top of search results. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Tamika Smith sitting in for Dave Fittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, August 21st, 2019. Beijing has come out with a forthright defense of freedom of speech, sort of, after Twitter and Facebook on Monday took down accounts they determined were conducting information operations against the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. And after Twitter changed its advertising policy to no longer accept paid advertising from state-controlled media, China's government protested the company's actions. The country's foreign ministry spokesman said the victims here were not the intelligence services of the Chinese government, but rather expatriate Chinese who were expressing their patriotic outrage over the discreditable misbehavior of people in Hong Kong. And it's not just those patriotic expatriates. China's government says that it also has a, quote, right to tell its story. With a chutzpah that almost inspires a kind of admiration, Chinese authorities are said to have pointed out the fact that both Twitter and Facebook are blocked in China as evidence of spontaneous patriotism in the Chinese diaspora. Singapore-headquartered security firm Group IB has published a follow-up report on silence, the Russian-speaking criminal gang they've tracked for the last three years. Silence initially displayed poor upsec and was confined to a limited range of mostly Russian targets. However, the group has now improved its security game and has expanded internationally to more than 30 countries. Their customary infection technique is phishing. Beginning with a reconnaissance phase that sends bogus email delivery failure notices, once they've compromised a bank's networks, the attackers move laterally until they've compromised the systems used to control ATMs and card processing systems. Finally, they'll have local money mules visit the compromised ATMs and withdraw large quantities of cash. The group has stolen more than $4 million between June 2016 and June 2019. Group IB also noted similarities between the silence downloader and Flawed Amy, a remote access trojan used by TA505, 
The researchers say the code overlap suggests that the same developer is behind both pieces of malware, although they maintain that the two criminal groups are acting separately. According to Motherboard, Google, Mozilla, and Apple said on Wednesday that their browsers would block a root certificate issued by the Kazakhstan government to surveil citizens' internet traffic. Kazakhstan's attempt to force its citizens to download their certificate was apparently canceled earlier this month, with the government characterizing the move as a test. But Mozilla told Engadget in a statement, quote, While the government's test has apparently ended, the mechanisms it can use to spy on the web traffic are still in place, and some users may still have this malicious certificate installed. We aren't waiting for the vulnerability to be exploited again in order to fix it, end quote. As data privacy and rights take center stage in many countries, feelings around protecting data is re-emerging as another point for conversation. A new online survey by Palo Alto Networks and YouGov delves into how people feel about protecting their information. To sum it up in one word, confused. Here to talk more about these findings is Rick Howard. He's the chief security officer at Palo Alto Networks. Hi, Rick. Thanks for helping us shed some light on this topic. Thanks, Tamika. I'm glad to be here. All right. So let's pull back the layer when you say confused. To be clear, you surveyed people from several countries. So let's start with the U.S. What are Americans feeling when it comes to being safe online? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, we were interested in something very specific here, right? With all of the advanced attacks these days conducted by criminals and hacktivists and commercial and nation state spies, and what seems to be a continuous low-level cyber conflict between nation states, how are the victims of these attacks, the humans, coping? Are they receiving the training they need to be successful in this endeavor? That's That was the reason we commissioned the survey. For the Americas, right, uh, 62% of Americans feel they should be responsible for the security of their own personal information, but only 24% admitted to having a rudimentary security process in place to help them. Well, not only did you break it down that way, you also looked at other categories, right? For me, willingness to learn is the one that actually stood out. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the practicality of that being the foundation? Yeah, I think uh, that's really interesting that the normal employee or user of the systems want to learn how to be better at this, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to tell you, I'm kind of a, I'm in, I'm a naysayer here, all right? Uh, okay. The, the survey data confirms to me a notion that has been changing in the network defender community over the last couple of years. You know, in the old days, okay, it was common for people to accuse the user of being the problem. You know, I am sure I have some said public things like, you can't fix stupid, and if you could just get rid of the what weakest link the user, we wouldn't have any security problem. As I've gotten more mature, okay, in this field, okay, it occurs to me that, you know, blaming the user for not being technical enough to see adversaries like Oil Rig and Emissary Panda and Reaper attacking their laptops, you know, that all just belongs in the pile of cybersecurity elitist BS, okay? It just, it just does, <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> um, I have problems spotting malicious links in email, and I've been doing this stuff for over 20 years. But the community has been expecting the grandmas of the world to know enough to spot these advanced attacks. In hindsight, you know, that's just laughable. And the tech community has not made it easy for the general purpose internet user to navigate these obstacles either. You know, the... The tools we have for security are advanced and, and they work fairly well, but they're not designed for grandma to use. You know, they're designed for cybersecurity professionals. This problem is on us 
the network defender community for not protecting grandma from the attacks in the first place. Okay, so staying on that point, then what should the professionals be doing in order to protect someone like grandma? Well, they should be doing the things they know they should be doing. But, you know, it's typical for us to, if a bad guy is successful, uh, to blame the victim for doing something stupid. And I I just don't think that's viable anymore. Like I said, we can help grandma be more secure in her personal life. Right. But really, if that bad guys get through, it's on the security community, not the user. Okay, so when we're talking about the security community, we're talking about not only uh, um, about professionals, humans, Mm -hmm. but also AI. And you also did a study that looks at other countries. So let's look at other countries, including Brazil and Canada. Mm -hmm. You polled them and about their feelings toward online security and it being handled by AI or humans. So who do they prefer? I really like the Europeans answer to this, right? The the Canadians and the Brazilians uh, are are pretty standard, but the Europeans, 26% of them said they would prefer to have automation handle their security protection, right? And what's really interesting about that is we have reached the stage now in the cybersecurity community where machine learning techniques are really useful in the cybersecurity domain. And the reason it is, is it's become possible for organizations to storage large amounts of data, mostly in the cloud somewhere. And you really can't do machine learning algorithms unless you have piles and piles of data. I'm talking about petabytes of data. Uh, And these machine learning uh, algorithms work specifically well in very specific cases in the security domain, like, for example, um, finding malicious files. When you talk about comfortability and trust, you know, and cybersecurity is relative to the user, right? Whether you prefer AI because it's communicating to technology in a way a human can't and can secure systems more effectively or the feeling that a human would have more empathy. Can you talk a little bit about that idea of trust? Yeah, and I I think the community is slowly coming around to this, right? And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we relied on humans to react to the attacks coming against our organizations. But what we've noticed in the last 10 years is, the you know, bad guys have automated their own attacks, all right? And so if you're you're going to use humans to respond to that, you are always going to be behind be behind. My, I had an old boss of mine that says, you know, we're bringing humans to a software fight, which we will lose every single time. We have to get comfortable as a community uh, trusting the automation that we have in place to handle those incidents in order to stop them. Um, it's about and, bringing the right gun to the gunfight, basically. Yeah, it's right. Uh, at least we got to bring software to the software fight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So that's Rick Howard. He's the chief security officer at Palo Alto. You can find him tweeting at RaceBannon99. New versions of a popular Ruby library, REST Client, were found to contain malicious code that allowed an attacker to collect sensitive information and run additional code on clients' machines. The code was inserted last week after a hacker compromised a RubyGems account belonging to a REST Client developer. According to ZDNet, the hacker used the account to push four backdoored updates to the library, which were downloaded around 1,200 times. The attacker's goal seems to have been cryptocurrency mining. The malicious versions of REST Client have since been removed from RubyGems. And finally, scammers are gaming search engine results to display their own phone numbers at the top of search results. The searches they're gaming are for customer support lines belonging to well-known brands. 
Since paid ads appear up near the top of search results, people looking for a phone number can be fooled into choosing the wrong result. Voice assistants have proven particularly vulnerable to this form of deception since they automatically choose which number to call and provide no visual frame of reference for the user. Paying for the ad seems to make economic sense for the criminals since they get a solid return on their marketing investment. And in this case, the scammer's not calling you. You're calling the scammer. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Uh, Daniel, it's always great to have you back. Um, I know something that you all have been tracking at Lancaster is sort of the changing nature of nation-state cybercrime and how that plays into the global economy. What can you share with us today? Thanks for having me back on. So this is a, an area of real interest for me. So I'm I'm really interested in the large-scale systematic risks that come from cybersecurity in this global digital uh, environment in which we operate. Um, and yeah, the, the trend really is for increasing connectivity, hyper-connectivity of everything from the financial services sector all the way through to uh, our things like industrial control systems, physical process control. And that's changing really the nature in which criminals operate, but also changing the way in which nation states are operating. And we've seen a real rise in what's been variously termed as hybrid war, ambiguous war, grey zone conflict. 
where the the nation states are actually able to operate within the uncertain boundaries of of a globalized hyperconnected environment and so we see things like the bank of bangladesh heist which has been uh was attack against a central bank and reportedly conducted by a nation state in order to fund internal activities within within that nation state particularly around their military program now there are various conversations around that about the how true or not that is but that kind of concept that now a nation state is performing what would have traditionally be, been seen as a, a criminal act in order to fund nation state activities is quite an interesting and emergent of global politics within a digital environment it's interesting the possibilities that it opens up because uh, you know you imagine a, a nation sending in a you know, a group of folks in, under the cover of darkness to pull off a bank heist, the physical world, well, th- this is a different thing. It's a different plausible deniability, I suppose. Well, and that, this is where the ambiguous nature comes in. It's, it, as we all know, it can be very hard to tr- attribute actions to individual groups, individuals, or, or even, even nation states. And it's that ambiguity that drives the uncertainty within the political dimension that we're seeing. And also, it's the lack of physicality, as you rightly point out. If I was going to rob a whole load of gold, steal a whole load of gold from somewhere, there's only so much that I can steal. There's only so much I can put in a van for a given size of van and a given number of people. And there's only so many places I could take it to, and there's only so fast I can travel. So that physical nature of stealing physical rare items, physical commodities, is very different to the digital environment. And it's not just about theft, it's about the knock-on cascading impacts of, of that. And so understanding those and how the act of that, that theft may have real far-reaching implications that we're not necessarily aware of that become systemic risk issues in the future. It also strikes me that you know, there's a reticence from leaders of nation-states, perhaps acting in their own self-interest, to draw lines in the sand to say that we're not going to do these sorts of things. They've left a lot of that fuzzy and, as you say, ambiguous. Well, we've seen uh, certainly uh, recently nation states coming out and actually exercising some of that that cyber power, that cyber influence, and, and, and actually directly attacking as part of a political influence process. And that, again, has real real-world kind of implications on politics. And one of the concerns is really around that global infrastructure. You know, particularly in the West, we have this kind of very liberal view of the the internet as something that is open and connected. But we're starting to see as that becomes much, that infrastructure becomes much more critical to nation state economy, nation state prosperity, and civilian lives that the nation state governments are starting to go. Well, how do we control this much more? The interesting point here is that most nation state governments are really interested in borders and boundaries and how they control the the flow across that. There's certainly the big concern that I have is the kind of the balkanization of the internet, the the breaking up so that actually the perimeters of the internet for the prosperity of the uh, of the nation start to be much more policed as we've seen in in some other nation states. All right. Well, Daniel Prince, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.